You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our text this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the study that we have been in for some time uh, at the Advent here on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we ask now for your help to understand your word, that in the spirit you would speak to us, and that our lives, because of that voice of you in our lives, would transform us, lead us and move us into a, a life that is honoring to you and glorifies you, because indeed we have been bought with a price. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Paul has planted the cross in every issue that has confronted the church at Corinth. He has been consistent throughout. You're never very far away from the understanding that the sacrifice of Christ is the basis upon which Paul speaks. So he speaks in such a way as to be understood not because of his charisma or his eloquence or the power of his thinking, but because of what Christ has done. That's his authority. He sees himself as a slave of Christ and as a manager of the stewards of the mysteries of God. That's his reason for being able to speak. On a passage like this, it would be pretty easy to be distracted by me. That somehow, um, whether by age or by accent or by whatever, um, what is said is weighed. I'd like to come before you this morning on the same basis that the Apostle Paul came before the church at Corinth. It's out of the wisdom of God, the will of God, the cross of Christ, that's the basis upon what is said this morning. Paul has taken in the most recent issues, the issue of the case of incest, and then the case of lawsuits, he has tackled those issues in reference to the fact that they were not supposed to be like the Corinthians. And I think this whole book can be understood as in the difference between a cruciform Christianity and a cultural Christianity. And Paul envisioned a way of living the Christian life in community that stood unapologetically, non-defensively different from the culture. If there was ever a time when it was important and is necessary for a Christian counterculture, for a Christian sexual counterculture, it certainly is now. And Paul envisions that kind of Christian counterculture in what he has to say here. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were, Paul says. But now you have been washed, you have been set apart, and you have been justified. 
He uses three metaphors to describe the salvation that we have in Christ. Those three let us know that there is a radical transformation that happens in the person's life who comes to Jesus Christ. We come as we are. And Christ loves us because of Christ. God loves us because of what Christ has done for us. We come as we are, but we don't remain as we were. The grace transforms life. And it does give us a new sexual ethic, a new social ethic, that life can't be lived in the same way that the culture would live it if the culture is not consistent with the word and will of God. Sexuality can't be in any way divorced from our salvation. Salvation and sexuality go hand in hand. One can't live in a physical way different from the spiritual way. There is a physical side to spirituality and a spiritual side to physicality. We're not bodiless souls, nor are we soulless bodies, but we are bodies and souls in community. There is a wholeness to the Christian life that Paul holds out for these Corinthian believers. So it's good to pause here and to understand and to emphasize how grace truly does heal us and transform us and change us. I think that some Christians, because of sexual failure in their past, have felt that, well, the Lord can never really use me. And that's where you're wrong, where we're wrong when we think that. Because there are no second-class Christians in the Christian community. And the power of God's grace to take whatever brokenness, whatever sinfulness we have experienced, and to bring the Christ life out of that is what Paul is emphasizing here. The gospel of grace, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul brings it back to the reality of the cross. We are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. Uh, in the church in Denver that I served, there was a self-professed agnostic who was married to a Christian woman who came to church regularly with her family, and she asked me if I wouldn't get together with her husband. So I approached her husband uh, to see if he wanted to get together and talk, and he did. And so, uh, and I had noticed him because he came to church and he listened attentively to the sermons. Uh, but he was very clear that he hadn't become a Christian. And it was interesting because people at work had given him various books to read. So he was being witnessed to by his uh, colleagues. They had given him C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew. So he was in the company of uh, really thoughtful Christians. And he got together with me, and I, 
And yet his focus wasn't so much on intellectual reasons for not believing as much as ethical reasons. And we sat down and before we could even start engaging in conversation, he said, do you believe that it's right to use the love of Jesus as a defense for my daughter, inviting her boyfriend over and sleeping together on an overnight? That's what my wife believes. My wife believes that the love of Christ honors that kind of intimacy. And I, I said, no, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe the love of Christ justifies that kind of premarital sex. We said, I don't either. I can't understand that. I can't understand that Jesus would approve of that kind of sexuality. Those that use grace as a kind of justification for a type of lifestyle, a way of living that dishonors what the word of God says and what the word of God claims, I think is something that has had a real effect on the church, a kind of impact on our, the way we look at sexuality. Grace is transformative, but does grace also have in a sense, within it, the rule and reign of Christ, a change of life because of that grace. In the church in San Diego, we had three nationally known speakers over a, a period of time giving lectures, all in the space of one year, Philip Yancey, Brennan Manning, and Tony Campolo. They all basically gave the same message. Their message was this, that God's grace reaches down and can transform, impact, change everyone and anyone. Grace is the acceptance of broken people. Each speaker gave a series of stories of despised and destitute people who were victims of abuse or addiction or abandonment. All they, often they had been rejected by the religious people in their lives and by the church. But in the end, God rescued them. God provided the grace that was necessary to save them. But no one, no one even gave a hint that grace would not only save the brokenness, but give a life that was remarkably different because of God's grace and God's word. For example, what Paul said to the church uh, what he said to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Don't get me wrong. I wanted that message of grace preached in our congregation that no matter how broken, 
No matter how abused, no matter how abandoned, God's grace is powerful to rescue and powerful to redeem. But, sisters and brothers in Christ, we also do have to preach a message that grace gives a very different agenda to life. One that has now empowered us in order to live a life that is according to God's word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned, you know, this um, World War II radical Christian in Hitler's Germany, he warned that if grace doesn't have that transformative effect, if it's only simply receiving and accepting, it can actually become a poison. Not a healing agent, but a poison because it reinforces an attitude of life that is resistant to the will of God. It becomes a sleeping pill, he says. He, he, puts, he teaches us the grace that is constantly preached and offered. If it is not received and if it's not transformative, it causes us to... Uh, it causes us to be very gracious to ourselves, but not necessarily receiving the grace of God. We forgive ourselves, but we don't understand that Christ has forgiven us. Washed, set apart, justified. You say, the Corinthians say, I have the right to do anything. You say, but, but not everything's beneficial, Paul says. I have the right to do anything, but not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. And there was a kind of dualism that was taking place in the, the Corinthian mind that separated the body and the soul. And it they were basically saying, do as you please with the body because it doesn't count. Pay attention to the soul. That's what counts. I think it was in the 90s where uh, the Seinfeld sitcom kind of popularized the notion within our culture, at least one of the ways, that uh, sex really didn't matter. Sex was like washing your hair or buying groceries. Uh, sex really was just something as simple as a handshake. And I think that has just moved into our culture where premarital sex is something that simply is kind of accepted in the Christian community. It's like kids will be kids. And somewhere along the line, we probably do have to really affirm and state that that's wrong. And you can screw your life up needlessly. Yes, the grace of God forgives. Nobody should leave this room feeling that their sexual failure prevents them from really following the Lord Jesus Christ. No one should. But let it also be said that the Lord expects you as you follow him to remain sexually pure outside of marriage and sexually faithful in marriage.
And that's just really important. The reason Christians care so deeply about sexuality is because we do really honor the sacredness of the person. And that there is kind of a sacramental quality to sexuality. That that exclusive, permanent union between a man and a woman is celebrated physically through sexual intercourse. And that comes kind of as the capstone of a relationship that is developed and matured and understood before God. Not only though, in, uh, on two occasions, one when I was in Beijing on my way to Mongolia and I had a layover day and it was spring and I walked the streets of Beijing and couples were holding hands. I mean, romance was in the air. Uh, people were uh, out there, and, and it just struck me, that's not how it is in our cities in the spring. Uh, not even in Central Park in New York City. But there was a sense in which the taboos of their culture prevented the kind of blatant premarital sex in our culture, and they were enjoying romance because they weren't hooking up. And they weren't scoring. And I found the same thing in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. That there was this sort of romance in the air. We've actually sort of severed that within our culture. Because we've put something in play that has dehumanized the person. Rather than celebrate the sacredness of the person. Paul here is establishing the value of bodily obedience. You say food for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. But his power, God by, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. So the sanctity of bodily obedience is based on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's already building toward 1 Corinthians 15 and the reality, sort of the climax of the epistle. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? This gets into the real presence of Christ. When we celebrate the Eucharist, Christ is not in the elements. Christ is in you and in me and in this shared understanding of the body of Christ. That's the real presence of Christ. And this is what Paul is emphasizing here. The very fact that we are one with Christ Jesus and you wouldn't give your body to a prostitute because it belongs to Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? And this is a reference to Genesis, Adam's poetry, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. A husband will leave his family and cleave to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. 
For it is said, the two will become one flesh, and whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. Could that be clearer? And could that not be more important? Somehow, sexuality goes to the core of our being. Not quite like drunkenness. Not quite like swindling. Not quite like fraud. Because sex was to be understood as the bond that would hold a husband and wife together. And when that's used outside of the marriage relationship, it has a powerful, painful effect. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. But you've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see how this is a radically different kind of Christianity. It's that the Corinthians were tempted to have a kind of cultural Christianity, one that sort of blended nicely with the Corinthian ethos. Are we not in the same boat? But Paul holds out for a cruciform Christianity that's radically different. And it's radically different in a way that is most beneficial for society. Because sexual purity before marriage, sexual fidelity after marriage is something that is really the best for society and not only the church. Let me read this because I think this is important. In the interest of full disclosure, I think it becomes an evangelistic imperative to explain why sexual purity outside of marriage and sexual fidelity between a man and a woman in marriage is God's standard for human flourishing. To present the gospel without this teaching only causes confusion down the road. This may make evangelism more challenging because we don't want pagan notions of sexual freedom to get in the way of a person's freedom to come to Christ. But we also don't want the other shoe to drop. You don't want to appeal to people to come to Christ only to tell them later on, well, this is what Christ expects of you. And if we follow Jesus Christ in the Gospels, we always learn that he's always putting that which is costly up front. However, we want people to know that the coming to Christ involves embracing a biblical sexual ethic. Everyone has sexual sins to repent of. No one is sin-free when it comes to sex. But in Christ, we experience the power of guilt-freeing, life-healing forgiveness and the strength to remain faithful. Every generation faces this challenge from the first century to the 21st century. The last line, you are not your own, you're bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. We have a choice to make between admiring Jesus for the good things that he can bring into our lives and following Jesus 
and living under the rule and reign of Christ. It kind of comes down to that. Now, I don't know how you've heard my tone or how you've judged the personality behind the message. God speaks to us from his word. I'm humbled by that. It's not my opinion on this. Paul couldn't be clearer, couldn't be more straightforward. This isn't up for opinion or, or for grabs or, or for cultural influence. I think it still holds completely true today as it was when he spoke it. So let's live into this salvation, not as admirers of Jesus who take and leave what we want, but as real disciples who seek to follow him. Grace heals all manner of sin. And grace empowers all matter of faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord God, by your spirit, please apply this word in ways that uh, I just can't do with my personality. And I ask that you take this word and apply it to our minds and hearts. Help us to live into the salvation that you have provided for us through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, your son, in the spirit and to the glory of the Father. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.